thanksgiving for drawing us here tonight. We thank you that those words that we just sung are true. That through the valleys and the depths of despair, through the mountains and glorious times of victory and everywhere in between, you are ours forevermore. And we have indeed, therefore, been given the keys to the heavenly city. In the meantime, Keep us faithful, Lord, empower us by your spirit that we might be able to stand through any sort of tribulation that comes our way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated and welcome to Epiphany this evening, gang. Good to be here with you to worship God and to hear from his word tonight. Uh, last time we gathered uh, around the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And we saw a series of really cataclysmic events described for us there. Uh, wars and famine and pestilence and bloodshed was depicted for us as the world went through a great tribulation. Of course, it was describing things that are going to happen as we get closer and closer to the end. And yet at the same time, it's also describing things that have happened before. There's this sort of cyclical thing that you see go on in the book of Revelation where on the one hand, yes, there might be a greater intensity of these things, wars, rivers of wars, earthquakes, etc. at the end, but they're not entirely foreign to us either. We've experienced life with these difficulties. And in the chapter, we met some martyrs for the Christian faith, people who had been slaughtered for their confession of Christ, who were crying out these words, How long, O Lord, before you fix the injustice of the world? How long before your vengeance comes? How long before you judge your enemies and bring this world to an end? And by the end of the chapter, it appears that, that God is finally going to answer their plea. We read of the end of the world, quote, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This is all Old Testament imagery to describe the great day of the Lord, the time of his coming back. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain an island was removed from this place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? As God finally pours out judgment upon this fallen place, the powerful and the mighty struggle to hide. And that question, that haunting question at the end, who can stand? is the way the chapter ends. 
In other words, the question is, who can be preserved through such horrible circumstances? Who can endure? Or to make the question maybe more immediate to us tonight, sitting here. Who can endure in the faith when life gets so hard that you feel like all you want to do is stay in bed all day because you're crippled with depression? Who can persevere when the world is always sort of teetering on the brink of war? Who can persevere through a family member's cancer or through addiction? Who can endure? The answer to given to us from the chapter we're going to go over tonight is that only those empowered by God can stand, can endure. So by the end of our time tonight, we're going to see how he will bring about such endurance, who it is that he'll cause to endure, where this endurance will lead to, and why this endurance can take place. Four things. First of all, verse 1 how God will bring about the endurance. We'll read verses 1 through 3 to start. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. This is Old Testament imagery, of course, letting us know the world again is about to end, the four corners of the earth. It's, they don't, it's not a literal understanding. The Bible is not teaching it's flat. The world is flat. But it was just a way of thinking about it that you'd unroll it or you'd roll it back up. It's coming to an end. And they're, they're holding it back from rolling in on itself. John says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Let's pause there for a second. How is it God is going to bring about endurance to the people that are left here? Well, we're told he's going to seal them. Seal them. What is a seal and what did it mean at the time? Well, well a seal was a, a mark of ownership or authorship usually put on a on a scroll. So if you put a seal on something, you were simply saying, uh, this is mine, I own it, I possess it as my own. The text tells us there is a seal being symbolically placed on the foreheads of all those who live, the servants of God who live. What is this seal? Well, to answer that, we, we need to do a little digging through the rest of the Bible and indeed the rest of Revelation, to get some clarity. If you move ahead to Revelation 14, verse 1, we're told that this seal, or mark, is the name of the Father and the Son. He's placing his name, God's placing his name on those so they can endure. How is the sealing done? Well, for that, we have to go to other parts of the New Testament. You go to places like Ephesians 4.30, and we're told that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. 
So let's put this together. The Holy Spirit gives us a seal. What is this seal? The seal is the name of God placed on us. Where do you have the name of God placed on you? All who have been baptized have had the name of God placed on them. What does Matthew 28 say? To his disciples, go and baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the passage we read earlier tonight, Galatians 3 tells us all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me break this down for you. What gives the people the endurance necessary to stand amidst tribulation and persecution is to remember whose they are by their baptism. To remember whose name they are sealed under. Martin Luther, when going through the Reformation, of course, would encounter not only his own doubt about what he was doing, because for a while it seemed like he might be one guy against the whole world, but even afterwards, those who agreed with what he was saying about some of the abuses of the church at the time were still plagued with all sorts of doubt. I mean, they were still a very small group that was challenging a 1,000, 1,500-year-old system. Not all of that time was the system that they had then, but it was a long time. And they were challenging all of the leaders of the empire, both political and spiritual. And so guys would come to Luther struggling with the normal doubts that human beings have, struggling with sin, and wondering if they were up to the task, wondering if they could stand through the trials and persecutions that would inevitably come their way and feel like they just couldn't. And Luther's counsel to them, to those that doubted and despaired and were depressed and wondered if because they still struggled with the same old sins, if they were gods, he would say, here's what I want you to do. Every day when you get up to wash your face, remember your baptism. As the water splashes on your face, remember your baptism. Another way of saying, remember whose you are. Remember what happened to you. At an objective space in time, God said, mine. And don't you believe for a second that he's walking away from that. Too often, I find myself trying to anchor my assurance and my endurance in life on my own efforts. Bearing down gritting my teeth, grinding, grinding, grinding. And then I want to look to myself to see if I've done good enough. I want to prove to myself I've done enough. But Luther says, no. Based on passages like this, look to something that's been done to you, outside of yourself. Look to your baptism. And a very good friend who 
would come to me for counseling regularly who I would give the same kind of counsel to because he was so so insecure inside and was constantly plagued with doubt and sin and really would get to just beaten up by the voices in his own head. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You weren't real when you made your profession of Christianity. You probably don't really mean it. How could you really mean it if you continue to struggle with sin? And so I would just go through sort of a litany with him. I'd say, let me ask you a question. Were you baptized? Yes. What did God say he placed on you in your baptism? Well, I guess his name. Do you think you can escape that name? Do you think your father will just let you go? I guess not. Or I'd remind him about the last time he took communion. Hey, when you took communion a few weeks ago, my friend, uh, what did God say he gave you there? I guess, well... Jesus' body and blood? Yeah, that's right. What, what does Jesus' body and blood accomplish for you, my friend? What does it say? Uh, forgiveness? Yeah, that's what it says. So, guess what? You're a Christian. That's who you are. I wanted my kids to be anchored in this identity, and so when my kids were all little and I was still doing bedtime stories with them each night. I'd have a little routine with them. I borrowed this from my good friend Matt, Matt Popovitz long ago. Uh, I would, after getting done reading with them and praying with them, I would turn to them and I would do the sign of the cross on their forehead. And to each of them I would say, Jude, you're a baptized child of God. John, you're a baptized child of God. Lincoln, you're a baptized child of God. And then they, in turn, would do it to me. Daddy, you're a baptized child of God. That's where perseverance comes from, knowing whose you are. Knowing whose you are. So let's move on to who, then. Who will stand? Well, this is interesting, and this is going to get a little into the weeds, but we're going to dig into it. John begins by saying those who can stand are classified as 144,000, uh, apparently from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So look at verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Okay? Sounds pretty straightforward. Those who can stand are apparently 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel. But if we dig a little deeper into this number, there are some problems with taking this sort of straightforward, literalistic approach to the number. Uh, for starters, the, the list of the tribes is not the same as the list of the tribes in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, one of the uh, heads of the tribes, of uh, the 12 tribes, is Dan, but he is nowhere to be found here, probably because throughout the Old Testament, old Dan is known to be 
a tribe that went astray. Secondly, uh, Manasseh, Levi, uh, and Joseph are included, whereas in the original list of the 12 tribes, these names are not mentioned at all as being heads of the tribes. Thirdly, even though Reuben is Jacob's first son, Judah is listed first in the order of tribes listed here, probably making a symbolic point that Judah is most prominent of Jacob's sons because from Judah's offspring would one day come Jesus. Fourthly, the tribes of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, who are descended from Jacob's concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, are exalted in the order, probably emphasizing symbolically how God exalts the weak and the lowly. And then fifthly, when we look at the number, 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000, we note that in other passages in Revelation, that number is used to describe the complete and perfect total heavenly city. It's said to be 12,000 stadia. That's a unit of measurement back then. By 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. It's in the cube. So all, that, all of these things, and I'm not going to go any further in the weeds with you, suggests that this 144,000 number to the first century readers would have been more in line with what we read in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who are these people that are described as being sealed so as to stand and endure through tribulation and struggle? The two answers you could give, I think realistically or reasonably, is one, you could simply say that the 144,000 is literally 144,000 Jewish people that are given the ability to stand through a period of great tribulation toward the end of days, and that would be a fine and justifiable understanding of the number. On the other hand, many scholars believe, because of all the things that I've just mentioned, that this group is meant to be really a picture of God's whole church throughout time. Or what Paul refers to in Galatians 6, 16 and Galatians 3, 29, when he says the church is the new Israel. Either way you interpret the who in this passage. The point of it all is pretty clear. God will seal a great multitude that no one can number from Israel and from all tribes, peoples, and languages. What's the takeaway for you? What's the takeaway for me? There's going to be a whole lot of people in heaven. And I even think there's going to be a whole lot of people there that we're going to be shocked to see when we get there. I think one of the best things about heaven is like the first few days, we're just going to be walking around being like, oh, dude, you made it. Like, we're, it's just going to be so much excitement and enthusiasm over seeing people that we thought for sure hadn't made the cut, and somehow God, by his miraculous grace and mercy, yes, was even able to save them, because after all, he was even able to somehow save you. And if he can do it for me, then good gracious, I gotta believe he can do it 
for a whole lot of other sinners out there just like me. From all tribes, peoples, and languages. And why have they persevered? Well, it's not because of anything in them. Leave it up to them and their own strength and you're going to see a bunch of people that fall real quick. No, it's because, as it says in the end of verse 9, they were clothed in bright white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed. Remember what I said earlier about baptism being the place where it's healed? It's not an accident that the word washed is used here. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let's stop there for a second, because that is just weird. But oh so good. Why has the multitude been preserved? Because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. At first it doesn't make sense if we're taking things totally literal. And this is one of the reasons we don't when we come to Revelation. If you took things totally literal, I assure you, if you try to wash any of your white clothes in blood, uh, lamb's blood, it's not going to work out. They will not make it look better. No, no, no. I mean, the, John's point is clear. We know it instinctively. We understand what he's saying. He's saying the blood of the lamb, the crucified one, is the reason that we're pure. Is the reason... We can stand. It's my, you know, my son Lincoln doesn't do it anymore. He's, he's old enough now that he knows. But all my kids did this, you know, when we'd play hide and seek around the house. Of course, they would hide under a blanket and they wouldn't even attempt to hide behind a thing. They'd just, like, put a blanket on them. And you can see the lump, you know. I mean, like, oh, come on, kid. I can see you. They, but they didn't think so. Lincoln never thought so. Lincoln always thought that because he couldn't see me, that I couldn't see him. He's completely covered. There is a sense in which, because we've been clothed, covered in Christ, that the Father doesn't see the sinful us anymore, but only sees the covering, the robes that have been washed. So where are you being preserved for them? The why is obvious, because Jesus has done it all for you. Well, the place John goes on to describe in verses 15, 17 is the where. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. 
neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Remember where this was written. This is, this is a document written in the Middle East. There's no air conditioning. I mean, they didn't have any way of staying cool back then in the scorching heat. How much did it mean to them to know they're going to a place where that's not going to be a problem anymore? For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <clears throat> Don't you want to be at a place like that? I have had too many times in my life to sit with people that have tears that seem unstoppable because of the tragedy and challenge they've had to face. I have had to bury children who have died from incurable disease. I have had to minister to families whose spouse has had a heart attack far too young in their life. What do I have to give them? What can they look forward to? If those they love the most are gone, and this is it. But this isn't it. I get to point them to this. One day, this will be the truth for all of us. And I say even now, it is the truth, even now. Yes, ours are days where we go through valleys and tragedies and difficulties and struggle. But that's what's coming. Because God promises that because he's begun his good work in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And that means this is true for you. You're going to a place where God will wipe away every tear, where no more hunger will take place, no more thirst, and even something as powerful as the sun cannot do a thing to harm you. And that's good news. Let us pray. Father, thank you that that is our hope. It is, man, it is so hard to see it sometimes. And it's hard to focus there, to keep our eyes on you. Lord God, help us, though, because it's keeping our eyes on you where we find strength. I ask now as we prepare to go to the table that you, that you would minister to our hearts and give us once again the reminder that it is through your name and what you've given us that we endure. In Jesus' name, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.